0: All right, all right, all right, welcome back. If you're a veteran and you're struggling or feel like you are leading a path towards the darkness, stop and think about those who are around you. Think about how they truly value you, how they will miss you. You are not alone. You need to talk to someone. Someone will listen to you. If you feel like you'll be a burden to someone or you don't feel like you should weigh that, put that weight on your inner circle. Call the hotline at nine eighty and take option one. Don't make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're a new listener, thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast apps. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel at d underscore misfit nation. It's d underscore misfit nation. This will keep you up to date with our latest news, episodes, and of course, our great guests speaking of which our next guest is a military historian former military intelligence CEO for both the united states army and the united states marine corps he's a war veteran of iraq and afghanistan he has worked as an intelligence contractor for the u.s department of defense at the strategic and tactical level for over a decade in both afghanistan and southeastern europe he has expertise in military intelligence operations and strategic military analysis as well as the roman empire and how their stunning successes contrast with our catastrophic overseas failures. So without further ado, let's welcome U.S. Army and U.S. Marine Corps veteran Matthew Reed to the Misfit Nation. Welcome, Matthew.
1: Thank you, sir. Good to be here.
0: Uh, It's great that we're able to connect and uh, get you on here to tell some of your story to the Misfit Nation and share uh, your journey from uh, wearing the boots and suits to becoming an author to also your travels around the world and and, uh, some of your analysis
1: of what's going on in the world today. Sure. I'll uh, start with you. I'll just uh, start with uh, my early military career and go from there. Give a summary. That'll work. So I uh, graduated from the University of St. Thomas in Houston in 2003 with a uh, B.A. degree in history, uh, specializing in the history of Western civilization. And then, of course, military history, studying the Roman Empire is a very big part of history training, especially if you go into a Catholic institution. I would personally argue those institutions are probably better for learning the military history of the Roman Empire than most military academies are. just going they go into a lot more detail. So I had that degree, got out, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Um, I was originally a grunt in the Marine Corps. I only did four years, got out, uh, did write a book the last few months I was in. I tried to market through an independent publisher. That didn't go so well, and having to pull it out, rewrite it, and then republish it. Uh First regular job I had was selling cars at the Archer Dodge dealership uh, just in uh, Stafford outside of Sugar Land, Texas, all kind of near Houston. Didn't last too long in that job. I guess I'm just not that good of a liar or a BSer. So, <clears throat> yeah. So <laughs> I left that job and got a perhaps a more honest living uh, working as a doorman at a couple of topless strip clubs in West Houston. They were actually run by a former mob boss who was living under federal witness protection. There was a news story on it sometime later. Uh, then I went back in the military, went to the Army. And that's when I went into military intelligence. That's when my career and current lifestyle really got launched. So I went into the Army, I went to the human intelligence course at Fort Huachuca as a MAST, did the course, came out, went to my duty station, Fort Wainwright, then went straight over to Iraq where the unit was already deployed. Did about six months there as an interrogator with the 184th Military Intelligence Company. Uh, did a few interrogations. I interrogated some top-level HVIs. Uh long as I did, I believe, exhausting, mentally at least. And uh, came back to Fort Wayne, I Went to some more advanced courses like the Source Operations Course, SOC. We used to call it the Joint Source Validation Course. You're learning different types of tradecraft, more or less. And then we deployed to Afghanistan in 2011. I was a non-commissioned officer in charge for uh, my brigade's S2X human intelligence shop. I had a small number of humaners and analysts working under me. Uh, Good kids, all of them. And most most of them were soldiers on their first deployment. It was a little bit of a rough time for them, but, you know, we got them all through it. And I came back to Fort Wainwright, uh, got out of the Army for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to lie, that deployment sucked the life out of me. It really did. Um, it was a. It was not a good one for the brigade. Women. We had an outstanding brigade commander. We had outstanding leadership, but it was not a walk in the park. We lost a lot of people. So, I got out of the army and went to work as a contractor in the intelligence community. And I worked my way from you know tactical to operational. I spent my last couple of years in Afghanistan, twenty fourteen through twenty fifteen, as a senior analyst. At uh, a strategic intelligence collection platform, most of what we did there was classified, but we were a strategic level platform. We worked out of places like Camp Phoenix, uh, Area 82 at Bagram Air Base. Our operating authorities were approved by people who had to be, shall we say, elected to office. And so our, our duties were pretty significant. I left Afghanistan in 2015. Then I went to the Balkans to work as a counterintelligence analyst for U.S. Army Europe and for KFOR, Kosovo forces out there in the Balkans. Uh, My job as a counterintelligence analyst was to prevent foreign intelligence services from penetrating our human intelligence source operations, which they have been trying to do in earnest for quite some time, and then root out any double agent penetrations in that human intelligence source pool. As a bit to the best of my ability, while working with badge and credential counterintelligence agents to do the same and work those investigations. Whenever we identified a penetration or someone trying to penetrate our source pool, or a double agent who was already there, who I rooted out. Uh, long story short, it was a good six years. Got a few scalps on my belt. Um, position got cut a number of months ago. They told me, "Thank you, Mr. Reed." Uh, It's been great, but your position's cut. Uh, I didn't want to take the job they offered me in Belgium for a lot of different reasons. And I came home and started marketing the books that I wrote, the six novels and novellas. And that's what I'm doing now besides trying to go on as many podcasts as I can. I'm trying to, in some ways, maybe help my fellow veterans out because I also worked at different echelons in the intelligence community where I interacted with generals and policymakers I saw the war from different echelons, the catastrophic failures from the top down, and sometimes try to give them a perspective to maybe get a little more understanding in just how things got so screwed up, and maybe in that way help them find closure. And if there's ever time, I always talk about uh, organizations like the Roman Empire, why they were such a stunning success with their empire until they their military disintegrated that was the primary core cause not being able to get enough citizens to serve in the military was a primary reason the roman empire disintegrated but up until that point there's so many things we can learn from all the things that we got wrong they got right i try to do all that as much as i can um I may be the only one out there doing that but it's also done with not just helping my fellow veterans get some closure and some context on a few things, a better understanding. But also, if any of them go into high office or go to work as policymakers, they've got to have something to look for where things are actually done right. And that's kind of what I try to do.
0: That's awesome. Uh, one of the listeners, uh, automatically, when you were talking about service and how bad your year was in Afghanistan, uh, Misfit Nation was actually founded on the battlefield of Kandahar in Afghanistan 2010. So 2010-11 and Here's a they post this on it there, sucked. 2010 <laughs> yeah. 11 sucked and it did bad for us and that but that's where we our brotherhood started and it's growing strong now and the, you can't take back what happened but we always know what happened and like you said that's that's why this show is here to help veterans like yourself come on tell your story and also a voice that you're there to help other veterans and that's what it's all about here giving back to and helping those that we left behind or our brothers and sisters that need it most. Yes, sir. Uh, you talked about your your books. Uh, did you always have a A creative writing side to you or was that something that just you found uh, through your research through college and then your research
1: as an intel analyst it was a combination of all of it so i i I did always have somewhat of a creative writing streak and a desire found that when i actually sat down and started to write what i wanted you know not what the teacher told me to write about some fairy tale we read in school like the secret garden i'm like really so (coughs) excuse me so i always had that and I toyed around with it a little bit in college, found I liked it, and put a few things to paper, saved a few short stories I wrote. Then when I got in the Marine Corps, I learned a lot, obviously a lot more about firearms, tactics, weapons. I had real knowledge of some things. I'm like, oh, man, I could use this. This is something I could write about. Then I get out, go to work as a doorman in a strip club, got a lot of writing material out of that, I'm here to tell you. a bit. Oh, God. <laughs> Whew. And so there was that. And then all my years in the army, army intelligence, the intelligence community, learning tradecraft, working on different platforms, studying how our foreign intelligence adversaries execute their form of tradecraft to, you know, come hard at us, do damage to us. And I was able to put all that in so many of my books such that some of the books that I've recently written, uh, one of which is a manuscript I just got back from the Pentagon. I had to submit that stuff to the Pentagon for publication review. And so uh, let me digress here. I got to say one thing since I still have an active security clearance. uh, Anything I say is not in any way meant to imply the official view of the U.S. government, the DOD, or the intelligence agencies. They told me I'm supposed to say that. Just got to (laughs) say it. So anyway, uh, some of my books, like uh, one I had published was a a military sci-fi thriller called The Time Killers, full of tradecraft action. You know, really graphic sex scenes. Guys, I love that but uh that had to be approved by the pentagon for publication i expected a lot of redactions because i got into a lot of deep black program territory with certain things related to kirtland air force base in new mexico surprisingly there were no redactions they actually approved it as is and said you're cleared publish it have fun whatever so there was uh yeah there was that and i've uh like i continue to write and plan to continue to write more books for the foreseeable future
0: that's outstanding and i know that process is probably you probably thought it would take a long time to get that clearance through uh, the big uh the big office uh city of the pentagon but uh, i'm glad it came through all right for you and unredacted so that's uh, the best way to get your your honest work out there so good job on you so in your analysis of uh Current situations. Uh, you were over there just. Uh, you were there when uh, we pulled out of Afghanistan. You were in. You were in Europe at that time. Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: What was the? I guess the feeling of those around you when that happened.
1: Oh God, uh, it wasn't good. There was a sadness and a tension on Camp Bondsteel. The unit, the National Guard unit that had rotated in, had a lot of older guys. You know, they'd all deployed multiple times to Iraq and Afghanistan like we did, and. Part of it was almost like we had to have a suspension of disbelief. Uh, The president had told the Pentagon, we are leaving, we are withdrawing. And it looked like there was no planning done by the contingency planners to get everybody out. And the whole damn thing was a massive Charlie Foxtrot. The incompetence at which it was executed bordered well past being criminal. So we watched that. We watched those 13 marines and sailors and soldiers died when that suicide bomb went off when i heard that they were using north kabul airport as the fallback point i thought somebody had read a duffel blog article honestly (laughs) because i honestly didn't think our flag officers were that incompetent and that bloody stupid i'm like guys when we were planning the initial withdrawal back in 2014 My strategic platform I was on, we were part of that on the periphery. So I had I had some window and some insight into that. And the plan was always, excuse me, plan was always to use Bagram as the fallback point. It's a massive airfield, spread out. It's got massive standoff distance. Any basic tactics soldier, marine, infantryman understands that. If somebody came at us across those rolling hills of open terrain, I mean, an Apache or a drone could smoke them like that. That was always the original plan. The original plans were very well thought out. Okay, I saw some of these things being war-gamed pretty thorough. And then to watch what happened, of course, they're using cobble, which is tiny, surrounded by elevated positions. We would call that potential for a fire sack ambush, the worst kind of ambush you can possibly be caught in, especially in an urban area. I remember looking at it and thinking to myself, I thought, Jesus, I said, You know, one or two squad of Taliban with some, you know, Soviet-made mortars and some rockets could turn that whole thing into a catastrophic bloodbath. And then when I saw the Marines and sailors that were trying to pull people into the gate, that one gate they were at, I used to drive through and up and down there periodically when I was in uh, Kabul in 2013 and 2014. And I just remember thinking, aside from being a perfect place for an ambush, That is one of the worst places you could detonate a big suicide bomb and explosive blast would be canalized by those concrete walls on either side. And whoever's in that checkpoint is going to get smacked. And that's exactly what happened. And a part of me looks at this and says, "Okay, I'm a historian on top of everything else. I honestly came to the conclusion that we were going to probably lose this war when I was deployed to Afghanistan in 2011. I was at 5 Mossengar. Uh, I had just seen one of my soldiers off to go on uh, R&R, made sure he got to the Black Hawk Specialist, Benjamin Lotta, good kid. So, made sure he was good. And I went, went up to the HESCO barriers on the uh, left side of our main gate and looked out, and our engineers were doing a route clearance, right? And we've been out there a number of months already. We had taken over from the Canadian paratroopers, and we had some human intelligence. We had an ODA unit a few clicks north, had good intel networks. We had p blimps, drones, periodic satellite overflights we could access in the intel shop. And in spite of all that, and frequent patrols, presence patrols, whatever, while we're doing route clearance, the engineers are hitting IEDs left, right, and center. Boom, 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 crump, just constantly. And I can't remember how many IEDs they found. It was a lot. Some of them had not been there that long. Enough. I thought, okay. After all the billions and hundreds of billions of dollars we've spent, after all the lives we've lost with these insane rules of engagement trying to win their hearts and minds, which by the way, has never worked in Afghanistan, the Persians tried it 4,000 years ago and ended up saying to hell with it and left. Cyrus the Great of Persia, yeah, that was what his undoing was, trying to win the hearts and minds of the Afghans, so I knew as a historian that was never going to work, but I was told, keep your mouth shut and execute Sergeant Reed, and I said, yes, sir, and did it. But I looked at all that, and I thought, they got all those massive IEDs planted right under our noses. After we've been here over a decade, after all the lives lost, hundreds of billions of dollars spent and wasted, efforts to win their hearts and minds, intel networks, satellites, drones, and they still pull this off. I looked at that. I looked over my interpreter, and I said, I don't think we're going to win. I said, we're going to stay a while longer. And then one day we're going to leave. And it's going to be just like when we pulled out of Vietnam and, you know, May April or April, May of 1975, with the helicopters in Saigon taking off the embassy. I thought it's going to be something like that. And, uh, you know, unfortunately that's exactly what happened.
0: It was definitely a, uh, a- Put it lightly a shit show and uh it was not uh pretty for the eyes and just uh, the early days before the explosion were horrific and not enough seeing the babies getting thrown up into the Constantinoir and the sailors and soldiers that were there young sailors and soldiers having to see that and make that choice do I uh, lean over into that concertinoir save this baby and then you're looking at the person that threw it knowing that they're throwing that baby and they know this is that baby's only chance for freedom only chance for a life because the Taliban is going to take over here within days. Uh, one of our guests is one of our listeners. I truly hope the echelons at the top have realized how bad they screwed that withdrawal up and they do better in the future because that was an absolute shit show. Damn right.
1: Yeah. And there's a <clears throat> this is where I can offer some historical context to help us wrap our minds around what some of the core problems were to how this thing got so jacked up. So let's look back at uh, try try our own history, say the Second World War, right? We basically built a new military almost from scratch. We took on two technologically superior military forces, and we crushed them out of existence in about four, four and a half years. There are a lot of core reasons why we were successful. Let's contrast the reasons we were successful with how we did things in Iraq and Afghanistan. So in World War II, The second we have a declaration of war, the National Command Authority, the generals, the first thing they did before they came out of their meeting was articulate a clear strategy and a clear objective. And they made sure it was was usually in a couple of sentences. They were following the Roman Empire's model. They said, we're going to annihilate the empires of Germany and Japan and secure their unconditional surrender. That was it. And if you asked a diplomat, a senator, the president, a general, a soldier, sailor, airman, a marine, or OSS agent, what is our objective? They would have all said that, repeated that phrase, and the answers would have been the same across the board. It was a clear objective. And we applied, of course, uh, overwhelming force or what the Romans would call total war to achieve that objective to the point where we targeted their civilian populations for incineration with firebombing and then later atomic bombs. To basically beat the fight out of them for lack of a better description but so we had a clear objective okay another thing we had in world war ii people forget about is our political elites our senators congressmen president the policymakers who came from the ivy league universities they were drastically different from our political elites for one primary reason whenever the nation went to war it was an american tradition going back to the revolutionary war When a war happened, the sons of the elites had to stand up and become officers, either combat arms officers or intelligence officers in all branches of the military. The elites were expected to put their own kids at risk, along with all the kids from the middle class and the working class, period, and in discussion. So World War II, for example, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's sons were Marine Corps officers, infantry officers, and pilots. Had he wanted to as president, he could have pulled them back and said, take them off the front lines. He and his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, to their great credit, said, no. If we're going to send 12 million other sons and daughters out there, we've got to be willing to put our money where our mouth is and put what I would say is called skin in the game. The elites were invested in the war. Their flesh and blood was invested. Their flesh and blood was at risk of being killed or crippled, just like everybody else. Senators and congressmen, same thing. As a result of that, they did not tolerate any incompetence from flag officers, such that General George C. Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, from 1939 to about 1942, the number of senior officers and generals he fired, until he finally got to Patton, Bradley, Eisenhower, McAuliffe, Ridgeway, Vannegrith the Nimitz was well over like 12 or 1300. I mean, he cleared out the bulk of the top ranks of the army in record time. Uh, Fired generals left, right, and center. And because the elites, who were the policymakers, the lawmakers, and the decision makers, had skin in the game, something else they didn't tolerate was this thing we think of now as rules of engagement. They knew we were facing an existential threat from two sides. They wanted to get it over with as quickly as possible by whatever means necessary. And then, of course, something else most people don't know, we think of the World War II generation as being mostly a volunteer force. That's not true. The majority of the soldiers and airmen and sailors we put to war in World War II were draftees. A lot of people don't know that. That drafty army took on the German Wehrmacht and did one hell of a number on under the right kind of leadership. So, look at how our political system and their elites behaved in World War II, and maybe to a lesser extent Korea. We get to Vietnam; a lot of bad things happen. We go into Vietnam; we don't have a clear objective. First, we say we're there to help the Vietnamese look, talk, and act like us and be military advisors. Then we're there to stop communism. Then we're there just to fight Ho Chi Minh. Then we're there to stop the Chinese. Then they're there to rebuild it. And just like with Iraq and Afghanistan, it's like every year we had to develop a different reason or a different objective, different rationale for being there. I mean, the parallels to Vietnam are just bone chilling. And it just boggles my mind. We could have made the same mistake, you know, when it really wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things. But when the Vietnam War was over, We were strictly an all-volunteer force, not saying that was necessarily bad, but we lost something we had in World War II. The elites and the people who have the money and wield the power in the United States in the money and political classes, 99.999% of them have got zero skin in the game. There's a great book written about this by a man named Frank Schaefer. Had no connection to military, prominent writer, intellectual, a very smart man, his son, just up and decided to join the U.S. Marine Corps. And he wrote a book about it called Keeping Faith on How It Changed His Life. But then he went on to write a book with another woman. I can't remember her name. She used to work in the Clinton administration, I believe. It was called AWOL, The Absence of America's Elites and Prominent University Members and Graduates from Our Nation's All-Volunteer Military. And he's also a fairly well-educated man when it comes to history. And so go back and look at the Roman Empire. So many reasons why they were such a stunning success and put most of the known world in dock in a relatively you know, record amount of time. One of the things you see with the Romans, all through the time they were a republic, fighting Carthage, then the Greeks, knowing the Romans also crushed the Spartans and the Macedonians as well. And all through the time they were an empire, up through about the late 3rd century A.D., when the elites stopped serving in the military, just like happened with us in Vietnam. It happened to the Romans. That's where it starts. The Romans had tradition up through about 290 A.D., where all the sons of the senators and the political class, they all spent the first part of their youth doing a rite of passage, what they call the tribunate where they served as infantry, cavalry, and reconnaissance and artillery and engineering officers in the Roman army. Most senators and most emperors in a lot of cases, that's how they started their careers out. And in Roman times, they were always at war with someone that meant you were killing people with your bare hands and hacking them up with swords and arrows and then having them crucified with a heck of a heck of a right of passage, heck of a forge to be hammered in. And so, that's how they would start their careers. And then their sons were serving in the legions as well. Okay, so the wealthy patricians and the senators, their sons were on what we would just call the front lines constantly. So when the Romans went to war, before they did anything else, they decided, okay, why are we going to war? What are we trying to accomplish? I.e., what is the mission? What's gonna they always got a clear objective? They never stepped off the first legionary until they had a clear objective and a reason for going, whether that was conquest like Spain, Gaul, Greece, Illyria, Judea, or later on, one of the last ones they did was Britain and then Dacia and Romania. They always had a clear objective. Now, usually that involved completely butchering, annihilating, and enslaving the enemy, but it was a simple, clear objective. They never broke from that formula. And then no matter what happened, they applied overwhelming, vicious, lethal force, focused like a laser on achieving whatever that specific limited objective is. So specific limited objective, think World War II or think Desert Storm. Right. What did Colin Powell say during Desert Storm when he was a chairman of the Joint Chiefs? He gave us a very clear objective. Scorched earth, we're going to cut off the Iraqi army, kill it, destroy it, and then we're coming home. Just like the Romans, okay? The British had a saying, it was called butcher and bolt. Real simple. And that policy, that methodology is one of the many reasons, along with skin in the game, but one of the those are the part of the many, many reasons the Romans were such a stunning success in maintaining their empire, even through wars, plagues and invasions. Simple formula. You got to have a clear objective before the first soldier's boot takes a step going towards a line of departure. That's one of the things you owe your military is a clear objective. Now, let's contrast that with, say, Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay, Initially, we go to Afghanistan with a clear, specific, limited objective. Okay, we're going to go get bin Laden, punish these guys, make them regret 9-11, so on and so forth. Great. Simple. And then we fail to get him a few times. Uh, Some incompetence on part of some of our leaders allowed bin Laden to escape. And all of a sudden now we're saying, well, let's win their hearts and minds, build them into a democracy. And of course, we're not the first nation to occupy Afghanistan and try that. Cyrus the Great of Persia tried it. The British kind of gave it a shot for like a month and said to hell with this bloody mess. Alexander the Great tried it. He even tried wiping out half the civilian population. Even he had to say, screw it and, you know, go back to Greece. I think he later died on his way. There's an excellent book you can read called The Afghan Campaign by Stephen Pressfield. Highly recommend that. But we had no clear objective. So what I saw working from the Army side, from the tackle level... Then as a contractor, we're working at the operational level and then the strategic level. Here's what I saw when I put all the pieces together. Every Army unit was sort of trying to accomplish their own objective. The Marine Corps had its own objective in Hellman. The Special Operations Forces had a separate objective. Ours was to win hearts and minds. Theirs was to kill terrorists. So we've kind of got two diametrically opposed objectives, right? State Department was trying to accomplish its own objectives, and they changed all the time. One minute, they're trying to contain Pakistan because they are a nuclear power and kind of unstable. The next minute, they're trying to do women's rights in Kabul or something like that, or women's rights in Kandahar. And then the CIA had its own strategic objectives. So you had all these different organizations trying to achieve different objectives. And the way I, the analogy I'll use, the way I'll describe it to kind of sum it up is, Imagine you've got an an entry team going in to kick in the door to a large house or a SWAT team to kick in the door to a house and do hostage rescue and kill a guy, right? Your objective, if you're in that entry team, is kill this one guy, rescue that hostage, okay? You've got your shooters, your door breacher, uh, your commander. You've got a uh, unit commander further out, hostage negotiator, and a couple of snipers, Okay, And if you're all trying to accomplish that same objective, you all work together, you focus like a laser, bam, you hit it hard, get it done, get out. But what if, in that scenario, each shooter, the breacher, the medic, the commander, the negotiator, and the sniper are all trying to accomplish different objectives when they go through the door? One guy wants to shoot the bad guy and get the hostage out, and the rest of the guys want to shoot the chickens, some want to shoot the stray cat, some want to blow it up, some guy wants to rebuild it, another guy wants to clean it up. If they're all trying to accomplish all these different diametrically opposed objectives, there's no way in that scenario that turns into anything but a disaster no matter how well-trained or well-funded that particular entry unit or SWAT team is because they're all trying to accomplish different objectives. And so what I saw was different government agencies – and different parts of the military. No one's working together to achieve a clear objective because we never had a clear objective. And I used to watch our generals go in front of Congress. And in some cases, I think those men knowingly lied to Congress and perjured themselves. Uh, if they, if they thought they were telling the truth to Congress and they were severely misinformed, just, uh, up different reasons for why we were there. And then every year the generals would testify before Congress and say, okay, Congressman, Senator, whoever, we've turned the corner in Afghanistan, right? Every year they've turned the corner. And it got to a point where someone, I think it was Senator Elizabeth Warren, stood up and said, you know, we've turned the corner so many times in Afghanistan, boys, we're just going in circles here. And so that lack of a clear objective. I saw how that played out, and I can see what a disaster that is when you contrast it with the stunning successes the Romans had where they rarely went into national debt and actually kept costs under pretty tight control. One reason is they always had a clear, limited, specific objective. They never deviated from that formula, no matter what it was in our case. That was where we screwed up royally. When you have that kind of a screw up at the top, a massive conceptual failure, doesn't matter how good your soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines are. They can be the best trained guys on the planet, but they don't have a clear objective. Whatever you send them to do is going to turn into a disaster. History shows that, and we just saw it happen twice.
0: Definitely. we definitely seen it twice, and well, it'll, it'll repeat itself as our same political climate stays the way it is now. it'll continue to snowball until we're speaking a
1: different language or using a different currency here yeah I'm, i'm i'm thinking about stuff like that and thinking about you know what happened to the romans and there's you've heard about some of the recruiting troubles we're having you know three quarters of guys being disqualified when they come into the recruiting office either for mental health drug use or obesity and some people don't really take that problem seriously here here's why i think it's such a serious problem so primary core reason the roman empire disintegrated was their army evaporated and fell apart Well, why did that happen they couldn't get near enough citizens to serve in the military so what happens near the end of the third century a.d the elite stopped serving the senators no longer have skin in the game They allow incredibly stupid military policies to be pushed through by Emperor Constantine because, again, the senators had no skin in the game, no sons in the military. What do they care? Any of this sound familiar? So that starts to happen. And then somewhere before and immediately after the reign of Constantine, it's hard for us historians to pin it down, but when I was at the University of St. Thomas, we studied this fairly extensively. So... What starts to happen is the Romans have a massive like 70 to 80 percent drop in military recruitment in like one generation, right? So their army, their entire NCO corps, which are the centurions, their field officer corps, the career tribunes who stayed in the army their whole lives. They always had a core group of field grade officers. That disintegrates. All their tactical knowledge, gone, all their know-how, gone, discipline evaporates. Gone. It'd be like the U.S. military having an 80% drop in recruitment, and then a generation after that, we forget how to do close air support, combined arms, and night fighting. Three things we're known for that give us an edge over just about anybody. If we forget the the ability, we we lose the capability to do that, we forget how to do that, the U.S. military would be nowhere near as good and effective tactically as it is now. That's the equivalent of what happened to the Romans. A lot of their ingenious tactics they had were never able to be replicated because no other professional army there. Well, there really weren't any professional armies, again, until uh, like the 18th or 19th centuries, and no medieval armies could ever replicate the the type of tactics the Romans used. It required a professional army, constant training, discipline, so on and so forth. But in the 4th century A.D. after Constantine, what do the Romans have to do to compensate? Or the fact that their army is pretty much disintegrating. They bring in millions of unassimilated barbarian tribes who they used to beat the holy hell out of all the time, the Goths included, who they drove out and partially annihilated in the third century AD. They bring them in by the millions. As time goes on, another Roman emperor, Emperor Theodosius, allows the barbarians to serve on their own tribes in the army under their own tribal chieftains. There's not much of an officer corps, NCO corps, left. Okay. And those barbarian tribes constantly turn against the empire, let in other barbarians, and it just kind of blows the empire apart and slowly disintegrates from within. To where by the fifth century AD, the Roman army is really non existent. What was there was not Roman because they weren't Roman citizens, they were militia, not really an army. So, imagine hypothetically, say 40 or 50 years from now, we have a 80% drop in military recruitment across the board. And imagine it gets so bad. That we have to bring in millions and millions of you know arabs or taliban to serve in our army and be our paid mercenaries okay that sounds crazy but that's what happened to the romans that's what a disintegration in military recruitment in all volunteer force will do over time if it gets steep enough that's what ultimately destroyed the romans and i don't mean to say we're a hundred percent like that i mean we have two oceans on either side we've definitely got thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons thank god for that but if the current trends continue and just like the romans it starts with their elites not serving a generation later it carries on to everybody else what that could do is get us in a position where we either have to become totally isolationist accept defeat overseas or go nuclear being in a position like that is not outside the realm of possibility. Uh, but unlike, now unlike the Romans, we guess we do have the luxury of two oceans and nuclear weapons. But either way, it's not a good situation to be in. You study the, the Roman Empire, so much of their problems that destroyed them were tied to that one issue. And I'm starting to see that happen in the United States. So for a guy who's also a military historian like me, like that red flags go off okay what's the primary problem here most of the recruits that walk through the door can't get in for one reason they're obese or drug use or they've had drug arrests so that means we got to treat this in my opinion these military recruitment problems should be treated as potentially posing an existential threat to our national security that would mean we need to treat childhood obesity and youth obesity As a potential existential threat, if this continues, maybe have to readdress our drug policy so every kid that graduates high school doesn't have a drug arrest for God knows what. That's a tough thing to address and fix, but if we don't want to end up kind of going the way of the Romans and being put in a really bad position in the future, we're going to have to do something about that. Even Jim Mattis brought that up at his hearing and uh, he was asked i want to think it was he was by either senator mccaskill or senator warren what do you think one of the great long-term national security threats is and jim mattis because he's also a man of history he's as well versed in the fall of the roman empire as anybody uh he said childhood and youth obesity because like most historians mass can make the connection between that military recruitment and what the core problem was in the fall of the roman empire it's slowly, unless something changes, it's slowly starting to happen to us. And I, I'm not 100% sure how we address that, but God help us if we don't. I think there's a, enough smart minds in our country that will
0: come together in a think tank or whatever format or, or forum to start that process to get it back in. Jim Mattis is still with us, so I know he still thinks highly of our military and he'll still have his finger on the pulse. He also asked in that same uh, Senate, uh, Senate hearing, they were asked, What can we uh, do to make our military better? He said, Spend more money on the State Department so I don't have to buy more bullets.
1: Yeah. yeah and, and that said. was,
0: he's a smart guy. He's a very smart dude, diplomat. And uh, yeah. I mean, you're obviously a very well versed historian. I'm sure the audience enjoyed the, the history, the, walk, the talk about history there, because we don't usually have someone that's as passionate as you are on here. And we appreciate that. Uh, I also want them to know how to get in contact with you, Matt. So, how do they get in contact with you uh, just to talk to you
1: or even to find out more about your books and uh, your works now? Outstanding. So is way just to get in contact with me, um, if you look at my Amazon author page, my author email is hybridnovelist at yahoo.com. And it's there on the author site. It's also on my bookbub.com author site. You can look at either one of them there. It's uh, hybridnovelist at yahoo.com. Awesome, and the website will be on the notes. It's uh, going across the screen right now on the bottom.
0: Uh, Matthew, uh, thank you again for your time tonight and uh, coming on and sharing a uh, history lesson with us, and that perspective of where we should be as opposed to where we are. Uh, it's it's always in, enriching for us to get a another opinion on here. And uh, the listeners to, uh, were all over it, and they said, "heck yeah, they enjoyed it." Thanks, Dan. Thanks for everything you said. They said,
1: "There's one of my books in case anybody was wondering." All right, hold it up there. We'll <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there you go. Awesome. No, but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, thank you for having me on, brother. I hope hope I offered the strategic perspective and the historical perspective. Maybe some guys found that useful. I I, I hope they did.
0: I'm sure they it did. It, uh, one of the comments was, "heck, you I enjoyed it." So that,
1: that 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 says it all right there. So thank you. Thank you for having me, sir. I sincerely appreciate it. Uh, God bless you and to all my fellow veterans out there. I. It hurts guys. I know it, but best thing we can do is understand how we screwed up and figure out how we can all put our heads together to make sure we don't screw up again. Heck yeah. Thanks again, Matt. Yes, sir. Thanks for checking us
0: out and being a part of the Misfit Nation. Don't forget to visit our website at themisfitnation.com. It's themisfitnation.com to catch up on all of our episodes and also to get some of that great Misfit Nation gear. As always, be humble, stay hungry,
1: and keep hustling because we are.